this is another installment in our neuroscience modeling series. Folks, this time I talked with Conrad Cording about the role of Bayesian stats in neuroscience and psychology, electrophysiological data to study what neurons do, and how this helps explain human behavior. I know, quite a big project for this episode. Conrad studied at ETH Zurich, then went on to UC London and MIT for his postdocs. After a decade at Northwestern University, he's now Penn Integrated Knowledge Professor at the University of Pennsylvania. As you'll hear, Conrad is particularly interested in the question of how the brain solves the credit assignment problem, and similarly, how we should assign credit in the real world through causality. Building on this, he's also interested in applications of causality in biomedical research. And he's also a big hiker, skier, and salsa dancer. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 84, recorded April 25, 2023. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, in the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. For any info about the podcast, learnbasedstats.com is la place to be. Show notes, becoming a corporate sponsor, supporting LBS on Patreon, unlocking Bayesian merch, everything is in there. That's learnbasedstats.com. If with all that info, a Bayesian model is still resisting you, or if you find my voice especially smooth and want me to come and teach Bayesian stats in your company, then reach out at alex.andora at pymc-labs.io or book a call with me at learnbasedance.com. Thanks a lot, folks, and best Bayesian wishes to you all. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like I'm Richard Feynman? Hello, my dear Bayesians. Today, I'm very grateful to Avram Eloni for upgrading his Patreon support to the full posterior tier. Actually, thanks to the continued support of all of you fabulous patrons, I just bought a new microphone to do on-site episodes this time. Yes, that's a small teaser. I hope that you will enjoy these special episodes. Among other perks, Avram just got access to the recording of our first modeling webinar, where Samir Deshpande goes through a case study of Bayesian additive regression trees. So if, like Avram, you want to sign up to all future webinars for free, submit your questions to be pre-chosen before the webinar, as well as get early access to the recordings, then you can sign up to the full posterior or any higher tier at patreon.com slash stats. Okay, now let's talk neuroscience with Conrad Cording. Conrad Cording, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot for 
taking the time. I am sorry for my voice today to you and to all the listeners, but I am with a big cold. So that's how it's going to be today with a big nose and hopefully not a lot of coughing, but we'll see how it goes. Best of <laughs> Thankfully, life. this is a remote interview, so I can assure the listeners that Conrad is actually fine and I'm not going to contaminate <laughs> him. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And actually, so I have a lot of things I want to talk about with you, Conrad. And it's going to be super fun. Lots of very cool neuroscience and psychology coming our way. But as usual, before we dive into all that, let's start with your origin story. So can you tell us how you came to the world of neuroscience and psychology and how sinuous of a path it was? Originally, I studied physics. And in fact, I got my degrees in physics. I'm a PhD. I have a PhD in physics. And very early on, I started to be interested in areas beyond physics. So as an undergraduate, I took all kinds of biology courses and that was very important to me because it didn't feel physics had the kinds of problems that I was interested in. In fact, it goes back even farther. So when I was a high school student, I participated with some friends in the national science competition in Germany. And we did biology. We simulated the way trees grow. And in a way, the simulating biological systems never went away from me. I always remained excited about it. So starting like a year into studying physics in Heidelberg, I got into biology. About a year later, I asked the physicists if they'd be fine with me using physics applied to biology for my for my master's thesis. And they were very clear that that wasn't going to happen. Then I defected to Zurich and got a degree simulating neurons in from the Institute of Neuroinformatics, where I then also did my PhD. Uh, okay, I see. So that was quite, yeah, quite a um, random interaction with the world of neuroscience in the end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you're originally from Switzerland. No, I, I'm German originally. I just went to study in Switzerland later. I started studying in Germany in Heidelberg and that's, oh, I grew up in Germany, but I enjoyed Switzerland a great deal. Yeah, nice. And Heidelberg, is that the city of Immanuel Kant or am I misremembering. That may very well be true. I, I, I don't associate. Oh, okay, so you don't know either. So that's good. <laughs> I never get to know Immanuel Kant, unfortunately. And my oh, working oh, I'm, on I'm reading so Kant that. was very painful. I mean, I don't, I don't know how your reading was, but I remember struggling with his writing. No, that was awful. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, that's absolutely awful. It's just, uh, yeah, I had to read that when I was like 20 for my undergrad studies and didn't understand anything. <laughs> still now, I, have, I still have to rely on people who can understand him to try and understand what he was saying. So for sure. Nice. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. And, and even uh, speaking German doesn't make things much easier. Even sometimes it's harder to understand something that's been translated, but it is hard even in the German original to read Kant. <laughs> well... <laughs> That's not something good to hear. <laughs> oh, and something I found interesting also, you told me you're a um, salsa dancer, right? Yeah. So which kind of salsa are you dancing? Okay, this is a wonderful question because most people don't even know that there's differences. So we are very much into on two uh, 
salsa dancing, New York City style. So we make the big step on the second beat, whereas a lot of people mm -hmm. make it on the first. And that's always then difficult if you're dancing with someone who likes to dance on the other one. But, uh, but given that I'm a lead, it's at least a little bit easier because I can at least do something about it. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I mean, like, I, when it comes to what I like, I like a lot of the classical things. I like Tito Puente. I like C Celia Cruz. I, I, I like dancing all the Latin dancers. It's just so much fun. Yeah, I agree. I'm the same. I really love dancing salsa and, and bachata. Salsa and me, I'm, I'm dancing. Bachata is great. Uh, yeah. Merengue is not so great, though. <laughs> I'm, I yeah, apologize yeah, to merengue. anyone who loves merengue, but uh, but chata and salsa—that's that's what I get excited about. Yeah, I love them too. I love them too, and it's a great, yeah, great exercise of um, like physicality and uh, also kind of meditative. So so it's really it's really interesting, and it gets you moving when you spend your days on a computer. So it's really something that's complementary to me, to the kind of activities we both have. But it's also like just a wonderful way of celebrating life. You know? Like there's something about like the energy and uh, the excitement and kind of being together and celebrating the good things in life. Yeah, totally. Completely agree. I was excited because it's quite rare that I get a guest who is also into Latin dances. So I was like, oh, <laughs> I need to talk about that on the show. <laughs> This was completely a personal crusade. Your guests are missing out on something important. <laughs> well, I hope that one day we'll be able to do a Bayesian salsa workshop, maybe. That, that <laughs> would be a fun thing. Where so so the, what, what you, what you might not know. So I'm part of, of course, the motor control community. So I, I worked a lot on how people move. And if you go to the top uh -huh. movement conferences yeah, in the okay. world, like Neural Control of Movement, there's a whole bunch of uh -huh. professors that are really into salsa and have wonderful memories on going dancing salsa with like a small crew of some 10 professors or so. So there nice. is a community into that. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see it because it's also something that kind of amazes me with the dance is that when you start, you don't really know anything and at least for me, uh, was extremely bad because in France, people don't really dance. They just move uh, with music. So it's not, so it's, it's, it was kind of hard for me at, at, at the beginning. But something that always amazes my nerd brain is that you've got very delineated and precise steps. So very discrete steps. But once you put them together, it looks like a wonderful continuous function. And it seems like it's completely flow. It's a complete flow. It's incredible. It looks like a, you know, perfect caution process uh, line, <laughs> but actually it's made of really small step sizes that put together look continuous, but actually are not. And I really love that. Like basically the art is in, in like in combining those steps in as fluid and continuous flow as possible. And I mean, that's really the nerd way of looking at it, but I really love it. And that's why I'm saying that math and science and art are not that far from each other. Yeah, they're not. <laughs> so, uh, well, we could do the episode about that, but that, let's not already <laughs> do that. So let me get back on track and ask you a question I always ask to my guests at the beginning. And that's, 
If you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods and how frequently you use them today. Yeah, I, I think I remember that quite well. So when I was a PhD student in Zoic, I started thinking in a Bayesian way, but I didn't quite know that I was. And then I participated in this workshop in America and I met Bruno Olshausen. And I am, I'm the kind of person who kind of invites himself to parties. And in that case, I invited myself to Bruno Olshausen's lab. I was like, Bruno, I think your stuff is super cool. Can I come visit your lab? And he was like, sure, you can. And at that meeting, in fact, Horace Barlow was there as well. It was a one, it, it, it was an incredible experience. And in that interval, kind of Bruno convinced me about the utility of thinking in Bayesian terms. And that's when I started being interested in formalizing things. So then later, when it was time to choose where I would go postdoc, I joined uh, Daniel Walpert in London. And there I then got a much more formal training in Bayesian statistics. Zubin Garamani was there and uh, Peter Dayan and of course multiple others that, that kind of really helped me become precise about what I mean being a Bayesian. Hmm, I see. Okay. Yeah. So it's really, again, a, a question of meeting people at certain time in your, in your career. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, and now actually, can you tell people basically how you would define the work that you're doing nowadays and also the topics that you are particularly interested in? Well, right now... It's very hard to know what I'm interested in, and it changes a lot. Right now, I continue being very interested in how brains work and how we could find out how brains work. I'm also very much interested in machine learning and neural networks specific here as model systems of how brains work. And I'm also, and that is much rarer as a neuroscientist, very much interested in causality. How can we find out that one thing makes another thing happen? But more generally, I'm broadly interested in brains and minds and how they work and how they interact. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is fascinating. And I've done already a few episodes about, about that. So recently we've had on the show, episode 77 was with Pascal Wallish, diving into priors and how people perceive priors and how that taints literally the way they view the world. So of course we talk about the work he did with Crocs and socks and, and the famous dress. <laughs> yeah. And episode 81 actually just aired today with Alan Stocker, where we talked a lot about visual perception and how it relates to, to prior. So uh, yeah, I'm, you, I'm getting you, you, you into know, that, that, that series right now. You know, Alan Stocker has an office right over there. And uh, we essentially oh, really? shared an office when I was a PhD student in Zurich. So he was, uh, <laughs> his, his desk was maybe 10 meters away from mine. So I'm getting the whole uh, Zurich neuroscience department <laughs> on the show, basically. That's right. Yeah. I'm really happy to have that kind of series. This is, these are topics I've recently discovered about and I really like, I really like them. It's absolutely fascinating. It, it helps me understand myself and other people better. So I guess that's why I love these topics so much. And actually, if you 
Like, if there is one, you know, big questions from your field that you'd like to see the answer to before you die, do you already know? Like, if you could have that wish, what would you say? Understanding causality, even in a single nervous system, from my perspective, would be a big thing. So let me unpack what I'm saying with it. So neuroscience is full of experiments where say we put in an electrode into a neuron, we show some stimuli, and we can then say, how does the neuron correlate to the stimuli that we show? Or like you can even say it's caused. Now I choose randomly stimuli from some set, I see what's happening there. But the kinds of interactions that happen in the brain is now I have one neuron making another neuron fire. We don't know how these neurons making one another fire, how that gives rise to computation and recognition and Bayesian statistics. And our experiments don't get at that because what I, if I want to know how one neuron influences another neuron, I kind of need to reach in and perturb the first neuron because correlation isn't causation. And so being able to really simulate even a single simple nervous system from my perspective would be a really, really big step. And I do hope to see that in my lifetime and I'm starting to work very hard to convince people that we should be doing that. Well, I hope that podcast episode is, is going to help and that huh. you're going to basically send the episode and be like, yeah, here's why you should fund that work. <laughs> Wonderful, yes. So to start diving a bit precisely into what you're doing, so you're doing a lot of stuff, but let's start by something that you call, I don't know if you call or if the field called, the credit assignment problem. And in particular, you're interested in, in how the brain solves that problem. So yeah. can you tell us what this is about? Because I have no idea. Yeah, it's a really big problem that occurs in learning. So imagine you do something wrong. No? Like, or imagine I do something wrong. That happens a lot. For example, in salsa, let's say my foot is where it shouldn't be and my wife steps on it. I made a mistake. Yeah. It's clear that I want to learn from that. I don't want to make that mistake again. And with that comes then a problem, which is like, which changes in Conrad's brain would make him better at that specific problem in the future. And so in at some level, like whose fault was it? How would we need to change that part of Conrad's brain so that he doesn't step where his wife needs to step at that point of time? So this is a very generic problem, which is I have an information processing system in my brain, a mistake happens, which changes would have made the mistake not happen? And that's the credit assignment problem. Like, who was it? It's like like a detective. Now, like, whose responsibility was that? I see. And this is the place where my machine learning hat meets my neuroscientist hat. So it's a general problem like that occurs. You can't avoid it. There's a mistake. Some pieces could help rectify that mistake. And in machine learning, the way we do it, we use gradient descent. We're basically saying we are calculating for each weight in our system, how much did this weight influence the output? And then we move all the weights into the right direction. And in a way, mm -hmm. so gradient descent, what we do in machine learning is one version of the credit assignment problem. But credit assignment could go differently in a way you could say maybe it's no gradient at all. We are just figuring out who's the worst neuron in the brain. And then we are telling that worst neuron in the brain to not do that again. So there's all kinds of algorithms that one could use, but it's an unavoidable 
problem that any learning system has, including those that are or become Bayesian. Okay. And is that related to basically the bias that we tend to have, which is uh, when we succeed, for instance, in something we attribute the success to our skills, but when we fail at the same task, we will attribute the failure not to us lacking the skills, but actually to the circumstances or to someone else. It's a great question and I can't answer that. So you can say credit assignment. I can say a lot about it because it's precisely defined at the level of the computing system. How we feel about it is kind of at the level of cognition, if you want. I'm 100% mm -hmm. with you that there's these biases now where we believe that if something goes wrong, it's someone else's fault. If it succeeds, it's, it's us doing that. But for that, I can easily tell an evolutionary story where you can say kind of like seeing others as being responsible might be good for you. But I don't think I can tell a mechanistic story about it. Now, like it's, it's clearly those cognitive effects are real. But I couldn't say how they come about mechanistically. You would need to do the experiments for that, if that even would be possible. Yeah, and we don't even know what to really look for. Now, like if you have these biases at the cognitive level, there's an infinite set of potential brains that could implement those biases. And we don't have the experiments at this point of time to like really see how the biases come about. And it's possible it's an interaction of everything, in which case there can never be a story that us humans could actually tell about it. Kind of depressing. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you just, you kind of said it in defining the, assign, the credit assignment problem, how it relates to how we should assign credit in the, real on, in the real world. But I think it's also related quite a lot to causality, right? Quite directly. Exactly. So can you tell us more about that? And maybe if you are doing some work, work around that in, in your lab. Let's talk about the relationship there. So if you learn, it means that something doesn't go as well as it could, and then you're adapting something inside. What you want is that the changes that you make in the brain ultimately gives rise to better behavior in the future. So this is a causal question, like which change would make that thing happen? Now, what we do in machine learning is we take the insight of the brain, if you want, the neural network, the neural network itself is continuous, so we can calculate everything continuously and we can do a gradient descent. The outside world is often discrete, you know, like I do step on someone's toes or I don't step on someone's toes. So the outside world isn't differentiable in the way the inside world is. So usually then we have these systems that kind of have a special thing on the inside and a special thing on the outside. And, um, but what in either case, what we want to estimate is how a change will make future things be better. What we generally assume that the future will be just like the presence. So then it becomes a question, which if I do something wrong, which pieces in my brain gave rise to it so that I can make the changes that that will not happen again. If I would be confronted again with the same situation. I see. Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's definitely some causal language here. What's the current state of, of the work here that you're doing in your lab? We asked a lot how we can 
how brains could in a way figure out about causality. One approach is, for example, you can say, if I spike, how do you find out what the cause effect of the spike is? So like I done salsa, I have an extra spike in some neuron. Does that make me better or worse mm -hmm. at salsa? This is very difficult to calculate. But you can still say, what, what would be the strategies that we could have there? So we could compare a neurons, let's say the overall reward, like how happy I am how, when I'm dancing, or my, maybe it's represented by dopamine or something. So I dance. One possibility how I could learn to do better is I could say my, the neurons in my brain do experiments. They, some of, sometimes they produce a few extra spikes, sometimes they few, produce a few fewer spikes, and then they see if when they produce extra spikes in that situation, if like it leads to more reward, and if they produce fewer, if it leads to less reward. And ultimately, if a neuron in that situation is correlated with reward, it means that the neuron should be more active in that situation. Like, and then you can say, this way neurons could ultimately learn to do the right thing. And there's, there's a paper by Ilafiet and Sebastian Song that proposes that say, Songbird learning could be working like that. But the problem is you need to now add lots of noise into the system to find out what works and what doesn't work. So what we did is we said, well, that's actually not true because you can say, if I compare times where the neuron spikes and times where the neuron doesn't spike, that could be very different. Now, like the neuron often doesn't spike maybe while I sleep and comparing those two doesn't even make sense. But what you can do is you can say, well, let's instead comparing spiking with non-spiking, compare times where the neuron almost spiked and the, neuron, and the times where the neuron just barely spiked. You can say, if the neuron is very far from the threshold, let's just not learn at all. And in that case, you can say, we have something that's that if we're very close to the threshold, it's as if it's random. And if it's random, then we can find out what's good and what's not good. So together with Ben Lansdahl, we wrote a paper that it just, I think it just came out in Plus Computation Biology that then proposes how neurons could actually be doing that. And what's interesting is it leads you down a route where things are relatively biologically realistic. Now, all you need is then that if you're really far from the threshold, you don't have plasticity, but guess what? You're like hyperpolarized then, and therefore there will be very little calcium in the cells, and then you just don't have any plasticity if you don't have any calcium at all. So then it's like reasonably compatible with that. So what we have with that is we have a learning wall that in a way combines combines uh, causal inference and gradient descent along with like realistic biophysical properties. Why would gradient descent help you here more than another method of modeling? So gradient descent is a method that tells you what the causal influences of every internal variable on the output. And then it does learning in that direction. So why is gradient descent helpful? You can say, if I want to learn anything, I need to change my brain. I need to change my weights if you want. Now, there's an infinite set of possible ways of solving gradient descent. Now, like I can find the neuron that is most often uh, most important and only adapt that neuron. I could adapt all neurons by the same amount, or I could have every neuron go down the gradient. So what's special about gradient descent? It turns out that if I want to produce a certain fixed amount of improvement of all learning rules that I could have, gradient descent is the one that gets me a fixed amount of getting better 
with minimal change otherwise. Now you can say, well, but why would we care about other changes? Well, if we change a lot of properties of the brain that we don't need to change by doing something that's very different from gradient descent, then it's like we introduce noise in the brain. Introducing noise will have the effect that it makes you worse at other things. Being worse at other things is a problem because it's interference between different tasks. And so the thing that is special, why I like gradient descent as a way of thinking about brains, is that gradient descent is of all learning rules, the ones that least messes up our brain when we learn new things. And how is that? So I'm curious about the technical side of those models now. What do that those kind of models look like? Is, are those generative Bayesian models? Are they more akin to deep learning models? Can you tell us a bit more about that? It's complicated. So in general, that class of models that focuses on credit assignment is generally related to deep learning. Now, these deep learning models relate in two different ways to Bayesian statistics. One of them is that you can say what happens internally in those rules can be viewed as being something Bayesian, where you can say the neurons maybe estimate some weights, we have some prior knowledge about the weights, and we can think about it in, that, in those terms. But the other one is if you have a system that learns with gradient descent, say a neural network, it becomes indistinguishable from a Bayesian system as soon as you had enough training data. Now, why? The best, most efficient behavior in most situations is Bayesian. That means that if I give you enough training data, you will learn to perfectly approximate a Bayesian system. And there's work from multiple groups that looked at that. And it turns out that it's very easy to learn to be Bayesian. Let's see, you don't need to be born Bayesian. Because you're in a world characterized by uncertainty, any, as long as you learn from feedback with credit assignment, you will eventually become Bayesian. Your behavior will look Bayesian, which leads us to a misinterpretation of Bayesian statisticians often, so like Bayesian psychophysics people. So in your science, there's this branch of people that focus on Bayesian ideas. Can we understand brains from Bayesian perspectives? What they look at is behavior that shows that human behavior is Bayesian. And I have contributed a lot to that field. All kinds of human behaviors are approximating Bayesian, the optimal Bayesian solution in a really good way. And they say, oh, but like if behavior is Bayesian, then shouldn't the brain kind of have base built in at some level? But if it's easy for a deep learning system to learn Bayesian statistics, it means that It doesn't need to be built in. It's maybe so easy to learn that there's no point of even building it in. Yeah, because also you could say that patient thinking is kind of an emergent phenomenon. So it doesn't have to be in the brain to actually be used. If you need, like if basically what you need is the ability to take in that data and change your mind based on that new data, well, then you don't need that actual ability of knowing how to derive Bayesian Form base formula to do it, right? It's you have the building blocks already, and you just need to use them. Yeah, that's right. Let's think through what's really happening. In let's let's look at Bayesian Q combination. You can say I have some prior a Gaussian somewhere in space. That's what I did for for some of my postdoc work. 
I expect, say, maybe my hand to be in some location or ball to be in some location or something like that. So I have a prior Gaussian. I have an observation of things. No? I see the ball fly or like I see my hand in the periphery or something like that. Has some uncertainty. The likelihood function probably will look like a Gaussian. Now, what's the effect? The effect is that the optimal behavior that minimizes variance or whatever metric you want to have there is going to be a combination of my prior belief, the location of it, and my observation. And it will rely the more on the signal, the less uncertain that is. So like if I see my hand really well, then maybe my prior isn't very important. If I know very well where my hand is, then maybe my vision isn't important and you can interpolate between them. Now, we're talking about a linear combination of two things. And we're talking about a linear combination where the importance that you have will depend on those two relevant uncertainties. That is a very simple function. In fact, a very simple function that with uh, two parameters I can directly learn. So it gets to be, it, it's not a hard problem to learn. That's super interesting. <laughs> and that gets, that can get, it's a bit like physics. It can get quite philosophical quite fast when you go to the frontier of that kind of science. But it's empirics, no? Like I can build a neural network with like 10 neurons and it will do perfect Q combination, Bayesian Q combination. You like run the same experiment on that little Bayesian, uh, on that little neural yeah. network that's just been trained to do good estimates. And it will, for yeah. all practical purposes, look like you or me when I do the psychophysics on it. Yeah. And if it's the same data, then like the the conclusion should be the same all the time, right? Even though you start with a different neural networks at the beginning, then the end, the conclusion should be the same. That's right. Now, like the big difference is that when we build a Bayesian system, we build in knowledge about the world. Now, like if I write, say, a Q combination paper, I say, well, I believe that there's Gaussian noise on this, and I believe there's Gaussian noise on this. And now let's build it. We build a normative model. We compare the normative model's performance with human behavior. They're very similar. We write our paper about that. But the alternative is if my description of the world is actually right, a neural network will learn to do absolutely perfectly the same thing because that's the right solution for that. So the difference is rather in one case, it lives in the data. In the other case, it lives in us thinking. Now, like if we're Bayesians, then it happens in our head. We think about the world in a certain way and we build that into our model and then the rest is just math. In deep learning, what we do is rather, instead of thinking so much about the world, we're like, here's lots of data. It still contains the same information and therefore it's freer. It will need much more data but it will come up with the same solution if that is the right solution. And out of that, you can also see the failure modes of Bayesian thinking. Now, like as soon as you, if I make the world more complicated, I can be, okay, Alex, how do you think about like me localizing a ball in space? And you'll be like, yeah, there's going to be some Gaussian and so forth. And then I'll be like, how do you repre uh, like how do you ask a question about how I should grab my bottle here? Now that is much more complicated. And like you'll be like, okay, there's like, where's the Gaussian here? There's like a structure, there's a bottle. Like Conrad, you'll be using your prior knowledge about bottles. And you'll be uh, and you might be, okay, and here's a data set of bottles, 
but I'll be like, well, but how can you maybe share it's a bottle? It could be something else. Like in one case, it's uh, in if in the deep learning way of thinking, you like throw a lot of data out of uh, at it. And whereas as a Bayesian, you're kind of forced to write down things. And the writing down things gets to be very complicated in a complicated world. And it can get pretty complicated pretty fast. <laughs> so one thing I like and I find really interesting in the work you, you folks are doing in your lab is that so you have that kind of micro level kind of studies where you use electrophysiological data to study what neurons do. So I think that's the example you just talked about, right? And then you have these more macro level kind of studies where you try to explain human behavior, which as you are describing on, on your lab's website is basically studying what all neurons do together. <laughs> yeah. That's always fascinating to me because in a way it's really weird because neurons, at least from what we know, don't have a, a conscious of, of them existing. But then if you put neurons together, at least for homo sapiens, we like that macro level has a conscience of it existing. So like to me, it's super weird <laughs> first, <laughs> but this is kind of an aside because I don't want to nudge yourself too much for this question. I basically, can you take an example to illustrate that kind of study that you're doing more at the macro level and maybe relate it to the micro level kind of uh, side of things? Okay. There's a big gap in between, but it relates to the discussion that we had earlier on. So let's maybe break down the macro and the micro. So there's the macro level. I look at you doing something and I can get out of Bayesian statistics. The worse Alex's vision is, the more he should rely on what he feels and less on what he sees. And we can play that game. I'm going to give you some glasses that are like a little bit distorting your vision and you'll rely less on vision. And I give you ones that are really very milky and you'll be, like, you'll be using it a tiny bit and I can make you blind and you'll rely entirely on your prior. Okay, that's the first thing. So that's the macro part. The macro part is logically wonderfully clear. Now, like it's the logic of the macro experiments are of the following nature, where I say, here's a problem that humans have to solve. Here is how humans, here's how the optimal solution to that problem would look like. Now let's compare the optimal solution to how humans do it. If we find them to be similar, we kind of conclude that basically humans solve the problem that occurs in the real world in a good way. Okay, wonderful. I'm very happy with that logic. In that logic, if you listen to it, there's no connotation how the brain does it. Nothing. For all that we know, if we if I wear that like macro hat, it could be that it happens by you doing like literally equations in your head, or it could happen by divine intervention, <laughs> or it could be happening through the interactions of lots of neurons. But logically, I'm not making a commitment to any of them. So that's a macroscopic level. And then there's the microscopic level where, you, where I might want to ask, well, how do neurons interact to make those things happen? A lot of the clean thought in Bayesian statistics is at that macro level. The macro level is logically super clean. And I remember an experience that I had with the late David Nill. 
I think we had dinner together. So David Nill, one of the really, really great Bayesian psychophysics people who had a tremendous influence on me and the entire field. And I remember going to dinner with him. And I, at that point of time, was very much in the micro, into the micro approach. How do neurons do it? And he explained to me, like, look, the micro approach is really complicated and maybe impossible. You want to be clear about which hat you're wearing, basically. If you wear the macro hat, the normative thinking hat, you don't need to subscribe to any specific view of how the brain works. You're just saying there's a real world problem. There's an evolutionarily or learning reason why you should be good at that problem. Let's compare good at the problem with how you actually do it. It's the cleanest modeling framework that exists in human behavior or brain science. So that's the macro view. And a lot of people in that area will kind of say the macro view is logically possible and the micro view is maybe very far away from it or impossible. So let's talk about the micro view. Now, like we have the macro view. What's the problem? How does the optimal solution look like? Let's compare it with people. The micro view is rather, I have neurons in my eye and those neurons in my eye send signals to the lateral genicular nucleus and they do so in a somewhat complicated way. And now LGN communicates with primary visual cortex and in some way that might be complicated. Now primary visual cortex goes back to the LGN, the lateral genicular nucleus, but also goes forward to maybe area V2. There are millions upon millions of neurons in primary visual cortex and they do incredibly nonlinear, interesting things. Every paper one discovers new, interesting things happening in V1. Do we understand how they jointly produce that we are successfully moving our hand to grab things? No, we have no idea how that works. And so in that bottom-up view, that like the micro purchase, you'd call it, there's this bridging problem. Like I can, I can tell you a lot about neurons in, in the retina and I can tell you a lot about muscle cells, but I have a really, really big difficulty of what happens in between. Now, let's make the link as tight as we can to Bayesian statistics. And I should mention here, together with Lee Miller, we did a lot of experiments, got money from NIH to basically ask, how does the brain... What happens in the brain during, while we deal with uncertainty, while we do Bayesian things? And what we found is that lots of things happen and none of them is simple. So, so the micro view, let's say year 2002, uh, 2002, back then, a lot of people were interested in what is, how can neurons do Bayesian things? And they came up with simple ideas. Look, we just need this small number of rules and it's going to help us figure out uh, and it's going to allow the brain to do Bayesian statistics. It's just the brain does it, Bayesian statistics, which we know from behavior, but it doesn't do it in the kind of simple way that as neuroscientists want to have that. And therefore, all of the Bayesian ideas of how the brain could be doing kind of died like over the last decade or so. Now, like, it was very, very popular if you went to Cosine. Lots of papers in that area. It's just they don't tend to have stood the test of time. People were like, yeah, the brain could be doing Bayesian statistics this way or Bayesian statistics that way. It's just like 
the brain somehow does it, but it's none of those ways. Now you can say that same criticism, of course, is also true for credit assignment ways of thinking. No, but there's one big difference, which is this idea of learning by taking the parameters of a system and finding ways of improving them. That's the only idea that has ever worked in machine learning. So I feel much more positive about that than that the brain say does. Bayesian integration by what do I know a probabilistic population code or sampling code? Damn! Thanks for these um, for this long and detailed answer. Lots of lots of things to to think about. And I mean, in a way, that's good that it's not that easy to model, right? Otherwise, that I guess that would be a bit boring. But it's like sometimes I'm guessing it can get quite complicated, right? So how do you, I mean, kind of a more general question I would have here is how do you kind of keep, keep track of all of that, all, all that moving science and don't get bogged down in either too narrow a view or kind of a nihilistic view where you would think, oh, that's too hard. Basically, we're we're not gonna learn anything about about how the brain works. That's actually actionable. Let's produce a little clarity of what we mean about that. What do you mean with understand how the brain works? Because that simple sentence is hiding a lot of the things that are really important in your sense. What does it mean for us to understand how the brain works? And also, it's so weird to ask that question because. And your brain is asking the question, right? So it's, it feels kind of, I'm asking the question and answering it at the same time. <laughs> Let's dig a little bit. Almost every neuroscientist will say they're studying how the brain works. If you push the neuroscientists, what does it mean for you to understand how the brain works? you're mostly drawing a blank because we're not asking ourselves that question. So let me highlight how... I mean different things depending on which hat I wear. So let me wear the macroscopic Bayesian hat of that. If I wear that hat, my answer of how the brain works is the brain solves the problems that the world gives it in a good way. My question is, what is the set of things for which it does it in a good way? And what's the set of things for which it doesn't do it in a right way? So in that sense, I ask how the brain works, but I don't ask the how in the definition of what are the mechanisms that go, give rise to it. I'm asking how in terms of the computation, kind of does it do the optimal thing? That's kind of what I do if I wear macroscopic base hat. There's another view, which is the view of how does the brain compute this? No way, you could say it goes from the retina, it goes to V1, it goes to like, and, and kind of like there is a, how does the local computation give rise to what the macroscopic person said? Now, that version of how does the brain work doesn't necessarily have an answer, no? like to be clear about that. Why is it possible that there's not an answer? Well, the brain has 10 to the 15 parameters. It's like 10 to the... 10 neurons that interact with one another. 
if I could give you all those 10 to the 15 weights, I'd be like, Alex, here's the 10 to the 15 weights that like define Conrad. And I give you the full simulation. I give you a big hard drive and it simulates Conrad and it talks like Conrad. It makes the same bad jokes. It loves dancing salsa, at least pretends to love salsa, uh, dancing salsa. What would you do with it? You would have no idea what you'd do with it because what would you do with those 10 to the 15 parameters? No, you can now simulate it. You can now do all the experiments that you would want to do on a human to ask if they're Bayesian on that simulation, but it doesn't produce an understanding. And in fact, it's possible there is no strong compression of that where you could say, yeah, sure, I can make it 10 times smaller than I have 10 to the 14 parameters. And now it like, is 99.9% as good as Conrad. And like now we can get another like factor 100 and now it's like 90% similar to Conrad, but that's not really an understanding. So it's possible that the micro understanding framework will entirely fail. Now then there's, if the micro understanding part fails, it's still possible that we can understand learning. Now let's say it's possible that credit assignment is somewhat simple, for example, because it has gradient descent, or something like that, or there's something complicated, but not super complicated. If you have a simple learning system after learning, it will still be very complicated because the world around us is complicated. No, our listeners can't, he can't see that I have blue hair, but I do have blue hair. And it's going to, the fact that I have blue hair after our interview, Alex, is going to be smeared over like millions of synapses in your brain. How are you? How can you describe it afterwards? And even if what you do is something very simple, maybe you just do heavy and learning. The result of heavy and learning in a world that is full of arbitrary stuff is arbitrarily complicated. And so you can say, now if I'm into, uh, into credit assignment, I might say, well, look, I don't know how learning Conrad's finalized brain works with its 10 to the 15 parameters because he's seen so many totally arbitrary things. I can't compress it because Conrad's brain is full of perfectly arbitrary, like weird things that like no one has any idea how it got there because to know that I'd need to basically have the whole video of how Conrad got here. But it's still possible that the learning mechanism is very simple. So that's why say Blake Richards and myself are pushing this like credit assignment centric view where we say, well, look, we're kind of convincing ourselves that the brain after learning is too complicated for us to understand. But the way how we learn might still be possible to understand. Now you can say, is this a defeatist attitude? No. Like when we ask that question of how does the brain work, we do that with a certain set of assumptions and we go with the definition of what we mean with it. It's possible that after learning, you can't understand it and learning, you can understand it. It's also possible that learning, you can't understand it because in reality, you don't just learn, you learn to learn and through learning to learn the way you learn now is also arbitrarily complicated. Now, like, I'm not saying that we definitely have a solution. That's super fascinating. And thanks for those clarification. So time is running by and there is a topic I want to, I want to talk about with you because all this discussion about the brain, of course, is making me think about, well, all the brain diseases and of course things like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's and things like that. So like to which we don't have a lot of insights from what I understand right now. So I don't know if you are personally working on that, but I know that 
you are working on biomedical research and of course you are doing uh, trying to do some causal inference in there because that's the name of the game so can you take an example to show us how you do that basically in that field wearing my medical machine learning hat i'm again a very different person so you can say in the things that we talked about so far i'm trying to understand i'm trying to see the logic of how things work in other work i wear a pure engineer's hat so you can say i want to give people who have lost an arm a prosthetic arm that is really agile that works great for that i need to be able to go into brains and tell you what they want to do as a function of time and of course we're doing experiments on monkeys because the human experiments are just really complicated and cumbersome. There you can say, if I wear that engineer set, I don't need to understand how the monkey's brain works. All I need to do is like figure out what the monkey wants to do at every point of time. Now, like it's a very different problem that I'm trying to solve at that, at that point of time. And for that, there's no connotations to how it works. It's just a distraction. I just want to get out the information, combine it, do good machine learning, and then use it to maybe control a prosthetic device. So do you have um, an example for us and also maybe something that we can put in the show notes for for people who when I dig deeper on that on that front? Because that sounds fascinating. Yeah, and I can give you a Bayesian and a non-Bayesian version. So we have a package on GitHub. And that package uh -huh. on GitHub uses just modern machine learning, just recurrent neural networks and things like that. We should build transformers into it at some point of time, but like it, it's, it's from a few years ago. And you could call it street fighting machine learning. You're not trying to understand anything. You're just trying to like really get really good prediction of what the monkey wants to do at a, uh, at a function of time. And there's a nice GitHub package that's called neural decoding, and a lot of labs used it for production questions. And what do we take from there? It really helps to do proper modern machine learning. It works much better than maybe the linear decoding that much of the field did in the past. So that's one thing. Here's a completely different oh, yeah. thing. Definitely we, we, we need to, yeah, if you can put that in the show notes for sure for listeners, I'm sure they will be happy to check it out. Absolutely. And now let's talk about a Bayesian version of that. So this comes from a different oh, project yeah. where we said, you move your hand through space. And if I have a decoder, I want to use the kind of ways how you move through space as a prior and the data we get from neurons as a likelihood. And I want to combine a good model of how you move with basically the neural data. And uh, the paper is called Mixture of Neural Trajectory Models, where we basically say there is um, there's sudden movements, there's sudden statistics, so we have prior knowledge about those, but we also have neural data, and then we want to use uh, the neural data to basically find out uh, which trajectory the animal wants to do at that point of time. So in that sense, we have a prior that comes from just a lot of movement data and a likelihood that comes from neurons. And guess what? The Bayesian approach is much worse than the non-Bayesian approach. Why is that the case? Because we can, with the other approach, we can use a lot of data and use the data effectively. Do you know what we call the beta lesson in machine learning? The beta 
lesson. The bitter lesson. What's that? It's not sweet. It's bitter. And the bitter lesson oh. Oh, is yeah. the biggest no, I don't. generalizing finding in machine learning, which is if you give me a new prom, let's say decode hand movements based on monkey data. Uh -huh. In any new prom, when we start, simple algorithms like linear regression will do badly. And then us humans, we're a scientist. Now, like I get paid to be a scientist. I come up with these ideas and, and I build it and my students do it and they're brilliant. And like, it improves things. So we go from a simple model and we build in all those clever things that we have built it in and we do better. Then time passes, computers get bigger, we get more data, we get data from enough monkeys. And in the end, a general purpose algorithm, not that unlike the linear regression that we might have started in the beginning, but once we have enough data, the data with a general purpose learning algorithm will work better than if I built something in. Bayesian statistics for me as a field is very much associated with people saying, here's my model. That means that they're always there, always at that middle step. In machine learning, we find that whatever it is that we solve by humans will eventually be killed by general purpose algorithms, which means that all our brilliance in the end is in vain because in the end, just enough data wins out against us being clever. And so the bitter lesson, as it's called, is the deepest meta insight that exists in the machine learning field. It just means if you have enough data, and, and let's briefly talk about where that's coming from. Now, like you can, let's talk about Q combination. No, yeah. there's a ball. I want to localize it. I have a prior. I assume it's a Gaussian, and I have a likelihood function. I assume it's a Gaussian. I model each of them. But guess what? In reality, it's not quite a Gaussian. Now you can say, okay, let's fix that. Let's like give it kind of four parameters. It's like a bit like a Gaussian with like some kurtosis and we can, we, we stay, stay Bayesians. Well, even there, if you get me, give me enough data, that's not true. But on top of it, I assume that the prior and the likelihood are independent. And in reality, kind of the way the ball looks changes like where I should be expecting the ball. And like all of a sudden, like, it falls apart. Like all the assumptions that we make, they're like first order approximations kind of really quite good. And then if you keep digging, they're not. Which means that if you give me enough data, I can basically get all those things right. And I can get the things right that you as a human can't even formulate. And like you might miss certain things. If I ask you, okay, Alex, let's, let's write down everything you know about baseballs. You'll write down a few things and you don't know that kind of it getting like slightly dirty on the ground, like slightly changes the way it flies through the air and like that then like ultimately something that like can be used and wouldn't be otherwise. So all of a sudden kind of like this way of thinking cleverly, you know, it gives us understanding, which is wonderful, but it also gives us a failure mode, which is our understanding will never be complete. And if you give me enough data, I can use the data to basically build something that is better. I'm a bit surprised that you can get, I mean, the question is always also like, how much data is enough data to get to that state? I'm a bit surprised that you can get so many, so much data, actually. That's uh, on, something on, on, I wasn't expecting from that field. On all things, you can progressively get unlimited data. Take perception. Now, like in the past, 
we could maybe store a video. Now we can use a million hours of video. And of course, we're better now because uh, a million hours of video, that's a lot of data, a lot more than a human being can write into an even very, very clever model. And that is happening in all kinds of domains. Take baseball. Like We know now like the pitches and bats of every professional baseball game played in the entire world. And there's a fun Bayesian paper by... Justin here from the lab, who like uh, nicely shows that uh, baseball players can be well modeled as Bayesian decision makers. But guess what? These people, well, yeah. will, the players, will also like watch lots of videos so that they have good priors and they they kind of maybe do something much more like machine learning, where they're like, okay, let's look at like a million videos on what happened there. And uh, in, yeah. that's actually fascinating. I, I just read recently a book by, I think it's David, Ep- David Epstein, The Sport Gene. I'm going to put that in the show notes. And um, that was actually fascinating. And he talks about the, I, the, the book is a bit old now. I think it's from t- 2013. So I'm guessing the science has evolved quite a bit. But basically, the, yeah, the Sport Gene talks about baseball and how basically Major League Baseball batters could be basically confounded by if you throw them a softball instead of a baseball, classic baseball, because their priors are so ingrained and so tied to the baseball (laughs) that then they would just revert to being normal players if you're using a softball instead of a baseball. So I'm going to put that in the show notes. And also if you can... Yeah, I mean, the, the book is, is really fascinating and really well written and, and very extremely good scientific journalism. Like, I wish it was always the case. If you can put also that that paper in the show notes for the listeners, that'd be, cool. that'd be awesome. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, before we wrap up the show, because you've already been very generous with your time. I mean, I could still talk with you for like one hour. I have so many questions <laughs> and this is so fascinating. But we have to wrap up in a bit because you're... Busy man. Before asking you the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show, is there a topic I didn't ask you about and that you'd like to mention? Hmm. No, I think yeah, we talked about all the relevant topics. It was a fun discussion. Yeah. Cool. Conrad, now is the time for the last two questions. I ask you again at every guest at the end of the show. First one is if you had unlimited time and resources which problem would you try to solve? If I had unlimited time and resources, I would start figuring out how mechanistic nervous systems work by doing large-scale perturbations and finding out how every neuron's output influences the how every neuron, how every input of every neuron influences the output of that neuron. <laughs> I am not surprised by your answer. I can see from your passion that um, I could guess from your passion that it would be something related to what you're already doing, actually. Of course. So you would basically do more of what you're doing. Alex, let me briefly interrupt you because this is a message that I think is very important for everyone to hear, which is mm-hmm. us as scientists, we kind of leave a lot of money on the table if you want because we could be doing we could be in industry we could be producing products but we decide not to do that because we're so curious we want to know how the world works and what that means is that at some level we need to work on the things now like what we get for for staying academics is that we get more freedom 
That freedom is useless unless we work on the things that we really want to work on, on the exciting things. Scientists focus so much on the important things for careers, and I get it. It's important to like survive and have a career and all that. But the careers are secondary. The careers are the things that we have so that we can ask the questions about the universe that we really want to. I think every scientist needs to rethink on a regular basis, is the thing that they work on really the thing they should be working on, the thing that would be so cool and ultimately make a big difference. And that's why kind of like, yes, of course, I'm working on the things that I find most interesting right now, because otherwise I would be doing the wrong thing. Then I should work for Google instead or something like that. Yeah, thanks for for these. Yeah, for sure. And I'm sure listeners have heard your passion and dedication in that whole episode. So so last question, and then it's going to be time to close up. If you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? Mm, that is very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. I like engineering, maybe Iron Man, but <laughs> I also like... Society, maybe maybe Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham would be a wonderful choice. Jeremy Bentham was influential, very influential in thinking about welfare and utilities. And Bentham, uh, I would have wonderful discussions on how society should be structured together with him. I, I, th I think Bentham would be a pretty good guess for me. Love it. Let's organize a dinner between the four of us. <laughs> Definitely going to be there. Well, thanks a lot, Conrad. Absolutely awesome. Thank you. Thank you sehr. Thanks for having me. As usual, I, I put resources in, in a link to your website and the different studies that we've talked about in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Conrad, for taking the time and being on this show. Great. Thank you. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash stats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a... Good Bayesian, change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.